The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled A Better Blend for Follicular Lymphoma, How Targeted Therapy, Epigenetic, and Immune Therapies Are Changing Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FJR 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to A Better Blend for Follicular Lymphoma, How Targeted Epigenetic and Immune Therapies Are Changing Patient Care. I'm uh, Dr. Nathan Fowler from the Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, and I'm really happy today to be joined by some very established and esteemed colleagues, uh, Dr. Krish Patel uh, at Swedish Cancer Institute in Seattle, and Dr. Nancy Bartlett from uh, WashU in St. Louis. So let's uh, start out. Uh, I'm going to just uh, give us a quick introduction and uh, talk about a, a, a case that we can uh, kind of use as we go through the activities. So a little bit of background in follicular lymphoma. Uh, it's a long, uh, the disease has a long natural history in the vast majority of patients. However, uh, response duration and many times survival uh, do shorten after each relapse. Uh, this is uh, data from a uh, more recent era, it's specifically the rituximab era. And you can see that both response duration and overall survival in, in broad uh, cohorts of patients then does unfortunately tend to get worse uh, with each uh, line of therapy and, and each of the colors of each of these little uh, lines represents, uh, uh, each of these uh, lines represents a treatment. So we have a lot of new drugs that are, that are approved. Uh, these are some recent approvals of novel therapies uh, for specifically for relapsed lymphoma. Uh, we'll talk about a lot of these. Uh, we have uh, imid combinations, which have recently been approved, lenalidomide or tuximab. Uh, there are several PI3 kinase inhibitors, which we'll touch on, uh, epigenetic modifiers like uh, tazometastat. And just this year, uh, we saw the approval of the first CAR T-cell uh, in, in follicular lymphoma. Now, uh, the NCCN recommends uh, several uh, different options for patients in their second line or greater. Uh, bendamustine uh, plus obinutuzumab or rituximab, uh, R-CHOP or obinutuzumab CHOP, uh, rituximab plus CBP, obinutuzumab CBP, or lenalidomide uh, and rituximab. And, and we'll, we'll talk about these. There are some other recommended options for second line, and that includes uh, ipratumumab, uh, uh, lenalidomide, obin, rituximab, and obinutuzumab as a single agent. So a lot of things, op a lot of options uh, for these patients, thank goodness, uh, in the second line and greater. Now, uh, there are uh, lots of uh, options for sequential therapy uh, for third line and, and, and beyond. Uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors are recommended. As I mentioned, there are four of these that are currently approved, and, and we'll discuss these in, in this activity. Uh, tazometastat and, and CAR T-cell. So let's start with a case. So Kevin is a 66-year-old man. Uh, he has a stage four follicular lymphoma, which is, is very common uh, when this disease presents. Uh, he's in a very good health. His ECOP performance status is uh, zero. Uh, on immunohistochemistry, the, uh, we did a biopsy in the immunohistochemistry that showed the, uh, the cells in his biopsy were positive CD10, CD20, and BCL2, uh, all of these classic markers for uh, follicular lymphoma. Uh, he had symptomatic disease. And so he was started on therapy. He got bendamustine or tuximab, uh, did very well throughout the treatment, but unfortunately had a relapse 
uh, within two years of uh, starting bendamustine and rituximab. Now, in all patients uh, that relapse, especially patients who relapse early, I think it's critical that we get a biopsy to rule out any aggressive transformation. And that's what we did. Uh, and in this patient, uh, there was no evidence of transformation into a more aggressive disease like diffuse large B cell. Uh, he was then started on lenalidomide and rituximab. Uh, he uh, received uh, aspirin uh, as a thermal prophylaxis prior to starting R squared. And he, he responded great, although he did have some uh, neutropenia that was seen in his third course of R squared. Uh, he received uh, growth factor support uh, and remains in remission after one year uh, of finishing uh, treatment. So uh, we'll come back to this case uh, and we'll kind of think about, um, you know, options that would be available for him throughout, uh, throughout the course in the second and third line and fourth line and beyond. So uh, again, uh, we're, we're going to focus on the role of PI3 kinase inhibitors uh, for patient management. We'll also look at this uh, really new and, and emerging data around EZH2 therapies. And uh, finally, about uh, we'll talk about these really new and exciting uh, drugs uh, such as cellular therapy options for patients with, with local needs. So I'll start us out uh, and uh, I'm going to talk about uh, drugs which uh, have really been evolving. We've seen several new drugs now in this class which have been approved uh, and that's PI3 kinase inhibitors. So let's come back to the case. Again, Kevin is, uh, as I mentioned, uh, he's a 66 year old uh, man when he was diagnosed. So he's a couple years uh, older now. And uh, he had uh, bendamustine rituximab, had R squared. But now it's 16 months later. Uh, and he has some symptoms suggesting that he's relapsing. He had imaging studies <clears throat> which confirmed that uh, he had new adenopathy at multiple sites, both above and below the diaphragm. So uh, what uh, should we do? Uh, and, and, and if we're considering a PI3 kinase inhibitor, uh, what, what would be the best option and uh, how would we dose him? So I'll use that as a, a kind of introduction to talk about this class of drugs. Uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors uh, hit multiple targets. Uh, we know that follicular lymphoma is a disease uh, where there's a lot of, actually a lot of genetic redundancy. Uh, there are often many different signaling pathways that are turned on and unfortunately can lead to pro-survival in, in these malignant clones. Uh, the good news is that PI3 kinase uh, hits multiple signaling pathways. Uh, you can see from this kind of complex slide that uh, it, PI3 kinase is important for signaling downstream from the B cell receptor from several cytokine receptors, uh, such as CXCR5 and uh, CD40, as well as downstream from Tegrin. And the, the activation through these pathways, unfortunately, uh, can give these malignant clones uh, both a survival advantage as well as uh, increased proliferation rate and potentially changes the microenvironment uh, that's present within a tumor. So it makes sense uh, to block, uh, you know, some of these pathways that are, that are giving these malignant clones an edge. Now there are four of these drugs that are currently FDA approved. Uh, these are the structures. Uh, you know, again, I'm not a chemist, but when I look at these, they all look somewhat similar. Uh, there are some uh, some small changes. 
Uh, they all hit uh, different isoforms of B PI3 kinase at, at a little bit different uh, efficacy levels. Uh, the main one that I think all of these uh, tend to target and probably the one that's most relevant uh, for hematologic malignancies is the delta isoform uh, of PI3 kinase. Now, the first one of these drugs that was FDA approved was idelalizumab, and it was approved uh, from a, a very simple, um, I should say simple meaning simple design, uh, phase two trial. Uh, this trial looked at patients that had relapsed uh, and refractory uh, fully clone foma. All these patients had prior rituxan and, and bendamustine. And you can see with this drug given uh, as a single agent uh, in these patients with relapse follicular marginal zone and SLL, that most patients responded. And this, this waterfall plot, everything below the line shows that the tumors are shrinking. And again, the, the point of this is that the vast majority of people, uh, regardless of the type of endolymphoma, had some shrinkage uh, in their tumor. Now, since uh, this study uh, was published, there have been several subsequent next-generation PI3 kinase inhibitors which were approved, uh, including duvalizumab, uh, copanilizumab, and most recently, uh, umbralizumab. Now, the Dynamo study is, is the uh, study that uh, got uh, duvalizumab approved. Again, it was a, a very similar design. It was a phase two single-arm study, about the same number of patients, 100, 129 patients, all with uh, double refractory endolymphomas. And you can see this waterfall plot actually looks very, very similar uh, to the prior slide. Most patients having some response. The overall uh, response rate was uh, 47%, which is also very similar to what we had seen with idealism, median progression-free survival of 9.5 months. Copanilism is an IV formulation of a PI3 kinase inhibitor. It hits a slightly different isoform um, than uh, duvalism or idealism. And again, these waterfall plots, uh, I like to kind of joke, you could overlay these all kind of on top of each other. It all looks very, very similar. Overall response right here, 60%. Uh, duration of response, 14 months, and the progression-free survival here, also uh, very, very similar at 11 months. So uh, copanilism uh, was also looked at more recently in a uh, phase, or I should say a double-arm study. This study looked at, this is called the Kronos-3 study, primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Uh, they enrolled patients with endolent lymphoma who had relapsed after at least one prior therapy. And this was a pretty simple design. They looked at copanilizumab plus rituximab versus uh, rituximab alone. And these are your progression-free survival curves. There was a clear benefit of adding copanilizumab to a rituximab backbone. Again, the experimental arm had rituximab uh, alone or rituximab plus placebo. These are the uh, safety results. Uh, I think the uh, adverse events that we generally uh, think about when we, when we use copanilism uh, are hyperglycemia and hypertension. Uh, they were obviously more often uh, seen in the arm that had copanilism. You can see uh, 56%, this is all grade uh, hyperglycemia compared to 8% with rituxan placebo, 40% hypertension compared to 9% uh, in the single agent uh, rituximab arm. Dose interruptions did occur, although they were fairly uncommon. Uh, due to hyperglycemia, you can see it occurred around, uh, around uh, you know, less than 10% of patients in the arm that had uh, copanilism plus rituximab. Most of these events 
were uh, managed very effectively uh, with just using some type of glucose-lowering agents, uh, such as insulin, uh, oral hyper, anti-hyperglycemia uh, indications. The same thing with antihypertensive uh, therapy. Very few patients had the stop drug, as I mentioned, and most of these adverse events were very uh, short-lived. Now, the the side effects that we generally think about of in this class include diarrhea and colitis. And the good news is with this drug, there was an extremely low incidence of, of diarrhea or significant colitis. That means uh, grade three or greater. Now, moving on, uh, as I mentioned, the we most recently saw a, a, another oral drug that was approved uh, for relapse follicular, and that's umbralizib. Uh, this was uh, just published this year uh, in JCO, and that that study that got these this drug approved was called the Unity NHL trial. Uh, again, uh, I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but again, very simple design here. This was a single arm phase two trial. Again, looking at patients with relapsed and refractory low grade lymphomas, marginal zone follicular, and SLL. As we saw in the other studies, the drug was given as a single agent with a primary endpoint of overall uh, response. This is the waterfall plot. Again, uh, compared to the last three I showed, uh, it looks very, very similar. Uh, the vast majority of patients having some shrinkage or uh, reduction in, in tumor volume. Overall response rate uh, in follicular lymphoma, 45%, and right around 50% in, in both marginal zone and in uh, SLL. Based upon this study, the FDA just approved this year umbralizib uh, for treatment of patients with relapsed and follicular lymphoma uh, in their third line uh, or, or greater. This is the duration of response, uh, uh, quite long uh, in majority of patients, again, uh, all right, or right around a year. And progression-free survival, also very similar to what we had seen in the other three drugs, uh, actually, I always like to comment, it's, it's shocking how similar this progression-free survival is across all of the drugs in this class, all of them right around uh, 10 to 11 months, regardless of, of, of the agent. We also saw a uh, clear benefit in patients with relapsed SLL and marginal solum. Now, uh, adverse events, again, I think are, are obviously very important when we're looking across these class of drugs. They all, they all differ. Uh, slightly. Uh, there was uh, diarrhea and uh, a little, very, very low incidence of, of colitis with this drug, as we've seen with the other oral PI3 kinase inhibitors, although the grade three events uh, were uh, low at only uh, 10%. We also saw a smattering of other uh, adverse events, although if you look at the, the column here that says grade three, they were really uncommon. Uh, we had a little bit of nausea, fatigue, uh, headache, et cetera, but uh, these were generally occurring in single digits. So uh, just, uh, we now have uh, another uh, oral PI3 kinase inhibitor. This drug is not yet FDA approved. This is Zandalism. Uh, this drug has a, a very long half-life uh, and uh, there are current studies that uh, are ongoing and many of those that, that are currently being presented uh, where we look at the use of this drug using a very different or a slightly different uh, schedule. This is intermittent dosing. And the idea behind this intermittent dosing is that potentially we could decrease some of the adverse events that have been uh, seen in some of the other uh, prior drugs. As I mentioned, it's currently uh, being assessed in several ongoing trials. The title 
the study uh, looked at this in flick lymphoma, very similar to the other studies who had received at least two prior lines of therapy. And I'm happy to say in that study, uh, we saw a very active uh, response rate, 70% overall response rate with a 35% uh, CR rate. So just last year, uh, Andy Zelenitz presented the early results of a phase 1B trial using Zandalizib. And uh, we saw very nice, as I mentioned, overall response rates, and it was fairly well tolerated. Uh, as I mentioned, the, uh, the, the study was a phase two study looking at this drug as a single agent. It, it, as I mentioned, it has a, has a very interesting uh, schedule. Uh, and in this trial, they used 60 milligrams daily for eight weeks, but then switched to an intermittent dosing schedule on days one through seven of each uh, basically monthly cycle. Uh, as monotherapy or combined with rituximab for up to eight doses. Uh, P PJP prophylaxis was used at all patients. And looking here at the, uh, again, response rate, uh, you can see the overall response rate, is that it, it was very, very high, 83%, uh, and 22% overall. But I think more importantly, uh, we saw very nice responses uh, in both arms, both in the monotherapy as well as the uh, PI3 kinase plus uh, rituximab arm. We uh, saw a update uh, by John Pagel uh, at ASCO this year, uh, and this was now looking at high-risk patients, uh, patients that had progressed within two years of initial therapy. And uh, here, the overall response rate also looked uh, very, very high, uh, but it looked high both in patients that had POD24 as well as patients who had uh, later relapse. Now, uh, the numbers here are very small, but again, exciting that it, it appears to work uh, even in this population where traditionally uh, they tend to have more uh, inferior outcomes. Now, uh, this is the duration of response uh, curve. And uh, again, it looks uh, pretty similar, very active, both as monotherapy as well as in patients who receive the drug uh, with uh, rituximab. Median duration of response has not yet been reached uh, in either arm. Um, and has not been reached in patients who were in the POD uh, 24 group. Looking at adverse events, it was very well tolerated. Uh, I want to just highlight here that the incidence of diarrhea uh, occurred uh, in only two patients. That's around 5%. Uh, both of those patients had uh, some colitis, but it was very, uh, I guess, very, very low compared to uh, many of the drugs uh, in this class. There didn't appear to be any difference in the incidence of adverse events, all in small numbers, uh, in patients who were in the POD24 group and those who had uh, progressed later. Uh, there was only one uh, uh, case of uh, pneumonitis, and that was only uh, grade two. A very low rate of discontinuation, only 8% of patients had to discontinue drug due to uh, an adverse event. So I think that the jury is still out there. Um, but it appears that at least uh, either the drug or uh, this intermittent dosing schedule is associated with uh, very well tolerance and, and a low rate of uh, stopping drug due to uh, potential toxicity. And uh, that type of schedule is also associated with high rates of um, disease control in, in this relapse population, including high-risk disease. So I wanted to put together just a, a quick slide kind of summarizing all of these drugs. Because you know, four of these are, are currently available uh, in the clinic, and I think now that we have all of these available, <clears throat> one of the questions that I often get is, you know, how do we how do we choose? 
And unfortunately, there's no really easy answer. Uh, As I mentioned, it's really, it's very surprising how similar the efficacy is across all four of these drugs that are currently FDA approved. If you look at the overall response rates, they're all right around 50 to 60%, uh, progression-free survival all around uh, 10 to 11 months, uh, regardless of the agent. And now, uh, I think the differentiator there is 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 um, often <clears throat> toxicity profiles. So uh, again, as we always talk about, you have to individualize treatment uh, when, when you're thinking about folic lymphoma. Uh, the rate of, of diarrhea and colitis uh, does appear to be the lowest in the IV uh, formulation of a PI3 kinase inhibitor, that's copanolism, although that's offset with increased rates of hyperglycemia and hypertension. All of the drugs are associated with a increased risk of pneumonitis as well as opportunistic infections. So I think uh, regardless of the drug, we, we always have to kind of watch closely uh, for that, especially in, in this era where patients are unfortunately at risk for uh, other type of pulmonary complications due to uh, COVID. So let's come back to our, our case. Uh, Kevin, as I mentioned, uh, uh, had received uh, bendamustine. Uh, he then went on to receive R-squared uh, around 16 months later. Uh, he has uh, now progressed and uh, uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors, I think, are, are a reasonable options. So I'm actually going to uh, uh, pivot a little bit and, and maybe ask uh, Nancy or Chris, uh, what, what, how, what would you think about when you, if you're, so let's say you're considering a PI3 kinase inhibitor, uh, how, how do you choose? Have you, cho- have you had a case like this where, where you've, you've had multiple options and what made you pick one versus the other? Uh, I'll, uh, Nancy, how about a, how about a, yeah, so I, I that was a great, and I think it's very hard to choose. And um, I I guess I haven't given the uh, copanalisib yet because of the IV formulation and the schedule. We see a lot of patients who come from a distance, and it's just uh, makes it uh, a bit overwhelming for them. So then I'm uh, sort of have chosen duvalisib most commonly. I think just because that was the next one available and seemed to had a have a better um, toxicity profile than the initial idolisib studies, but I, I, you know, I don't think that's been tried head to head, so a little hard to know. Um, I haven't yet used umbralisib. I think your uh, data with the the next one in line uh, that's not yet approved looks really interesting and and seems like maybe the response rates uh, are a bit better than the other four where they all look so similar. Um, be good to see some longer term follow up with that. So, and I think, um, I mean, there's not a particular patient where I would, you know, completely avoid this. Uh, so I'm, um, again, right now I choose Duvalisib, but I certainly might go with one of the Umbralisib, um, if that, or the, the new one when that's approved. And I'm uh, Chris, what do you, what do you think? I mean, have you, have you used many PI3 kinase inhibitors for, for this, uh, population of, let's say, third-line follicular? Yeah, so m- I think much like uh, Nancy pointed out, uh, here in Seattle, we see patients from all over the place, including Alaska and Hawaii at times. And so um, mostly my experience has been with the oral agents. Uh, we also have the Zandalisib trial here, so we've treated a number of patients. As you mentioned, um, John presented data at ASCO. Um, and so my experience is, is much like Nancy's, which the toxicity profile really probably drives my my choice of agents, and I've found um, at least duvalisib and umbralisib seem to be uh, well tolerated, and uh, those are usually my my go to options if a patient's not going on a study. Oh. 
Yeah, I have to say, I, I, I uh, it's it's interesting, you know. The um, with at least my opinion, the, the, when we had Idella, uh, we we had all these. It seems like you know we had all these. Um, I say all. There there were just a, a small subset of patients who, at least in my own practice, had really bad diarrhea and colitis, and I think that. Maybe because we didn't know how to manage the drugs, uh, or maybe it was the class, but it, I think a lot of people avoided PI3 kinase inhibitors at all costs. It was one of these, uh, agents that you used as kind of a last resort. And now, at least in my own opinion, I think, you know, as we get these newer oral agents, uh, it appears that at least the discontinuation rate and the, the, the incidence of really severe events is going down. And, but and Nancy, you pointed out, it's hard to know whether that's, is this that we're getting better at managing these drugs, uh, or is it actually a, a difference in the? I think that probably is, in my opinion, it's probably a little both. Um, yeah, I think we're getting better at it. I think the drugs probably are a little bit better tolerated. But um, yeah, in my own practice, I, I I tend to go with the newer PI3s. Uh, again, I've, I've had a lot of experience with Umbilizib, so it's kind of my go-to now that I can uh, get it uh, through the outside of a clinical trial, but. Um, and I, I, I really echo your, 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 your thoughts about the IV, um, at least for, for folks like, and then both you guys are, are in referral centers. Uh, so all my patients are traveling. It's hard to get them back to do IV, uh, because they, they just, they just don't want to travel. Um, so probably better, better, uh, choice out there in the community, perhaps when the patient lives close by and, and can do that. Yeah. I think that, as you're saying, just the experience with these drugs and knowing that we need to give PJP prophylaxis and, you know, occasionally monitor for CMV and those things make us a little less nervous uh, about using the drugs than when all of the everything came out about the late infections with idilolizib. And, and I think we've all learned from that. I think we've all learned from the LFT abnormalities that we saw very frequently in the idilolizib patients early on, but you can sort of take a short pause and start again without without a problem. And I'm not sure if that's true of the other agents or you've had experience with that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, if you, if, with, with one thing I've noted, and I didn't really focus on that when I presented this, but uh, most patients, at least in the umbilizib study, were able to, to restart drug. As you mentioned, you, you can get a break. And most of them, um, many times, even without dose reduction, uh, were able to restart and, and manage without a lot of diarrhea, at least in my own practice, uh, if they, if they have a grade three event, uh, I, I tend to reduce the dose so that's well tolerated. There are some people that, you know, they get it again and they, they get diarrhea and we just stop, but that's a long answer to your short question, but I, I have restarted and, and most people will tolerate it. Um, just because of the, just because of the, the, I guess what we're, seeing now what do, what do you think about covid i mean are you are you concerned about uh i mean not concerned about covid but with the pneumonitis uh is this something is this a drug class that you monitor more closely i think you you raise an important point nathan which is in all of these agents right there's a, a significant rate of opportunistic infection so i think i certainly talk to patients and counsel them and and uh, i haven't necessarily seen a a different rate of COVID in patients treated with PI3 kinase inhibitors relative to, you know, really any other um, therapies that knock down B cells um, for follicular lymphoma, but it is a concern. 
I did want to make a comment on, um, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about the Zandalicit data is that you can maintain those rates of response with such little time on drug after that initial eight-week period. So that, I think, really kind of um, highlights to maybe a difference in potency of that therapy. And, and perhaps that'll offer us benefits in terms of lesser rates of infection in the long term or, or other immune-mediated toxicity. So, so I think that's one to watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see the long-term data. Maybe you'll, you'll be presenting this uh, soon. We'll see. So I, again, we, we kind of talked about uh, this a little bit. Uh, the, the, I think we, we, we've heard very clearly that, you know, the, the kind of things that we think about when we're choosing between these drugs is, is the delivery of the drug, IV versus oral, uh, AE profiles, um, colitis versus hypoglycemia, hypertension. And, uh, and we, uh, talked a little bit about, you know, infection risk and, uh, we didn't mention much about prophylaxis, but I, I, I think that at least in my own practice, I, I'd monitor these patients for CMV and, uh, in patients who are high risk, we, we sometimes do do prophylaxis. I don't know if, if Nancy, um, if that's kind of the same that you guys are doing at WashU. We do PJP prophylaxis, but I don't give any other antibiotics. Yeah. yeah. Good. That's, I think that's probably pretty, pretty I, I noticed when, you know, when, when there was, when I think it was Idelizab, uh, there was a, when some of this came out in the label, uh, there was a suggestion to monitor these patients for CMV. Um, I know at least in my own practice, I, I tend, tend to wait until, um, unless there's some reason to check CMV levels, but I, I don't routinely monitor CMV. Uh, unless, unless it's a high risk population, I don't know if that's kind of the same way you guys. Yeah, I think unless, unless somebody has some, uh, concern for a site of infection, like colitis or something like that, we don't usually check. Okay. So I, uh, thank you very much. And, and I am going to, uh, sw uh, switch to, uh, Chris Patel, who's going to talk about, uh, some exciting epigenetic approaches. Uh, thank you, Nathan, and uh, thanks for the great uh, talk on PI3 kinase inhibitors. So now I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, epigenetic modifying therapies and follicular lymphoma. Uh, so coming back to our case of Kevin, um, this patient, as uh, Nathan highlighted for us, about 16 months after treatment with lenalidomide and rituximab um, is uh, experiencing disease progression. And so what um, might we consider uh, as an alternative to PI3 kinase inhibitors? And, and I'll review some of the data for uh, EZH2 inhibitors, specifically tazimidostat in this patient, and then uh, come back to, to consider why, why that might be a choice for a patient like this. Um, so just again, noting that uh, tazimidostat is uh, reflected in the NCCN guidelines for patients with uh, follicular lymphoma. And importantly, this can be used in patients who are either mutation positive for uh, EZH2 gain-of-function mutation uh, or who have EZH2 wild-type um, status. Um, there are a number of different EZH2 inhibitors that are in development, not only for non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, but other malignancies as well. Those are noted here. And uh, tazimidostat is the uh, only uh, currently approved agent for uh, follicular lymphoma. And so why is this important? So uh, tazimidostat's an oral inhibitor of EZH2, and uh, EZH2 is a histone methyltransferase. It plays an important role in epigenetic regulation of gene expression. And this is really important in normal B-cell biology. Um, and so shown in the cartoon on the right, as a, a B-cell matures uh, in uh, the germinal center, 
um, either EZH2 is increased um, in expression and locks the B cell uh, in the germinal center state uh, as a part of its normal maturation. And in this particular step, we can see that either oncogenic mutations in EZH2, so gain-of-function mutations, or increased copy numbers can permanently lock the B cell in this state, uh, leading to germinal center-derived neoplasms. And we see in about 20 to 25% of patients with follicular lymphoma will have a gain-of-function mutation uh, in EZH2. Uh, wild type is important here as well, because as I mentioned, there can be other ways that EZH2 uh, expression is increased either through gain of function, uh, excuse me, rather uh, increased copy numbers uh, rather than gain of function alone. So we can target EZH2 in follicular lymphoma, and uh, this was the focus of the phase two study that led to the approval of tazimetastat in relapse refractory follicular lymphoma. Uh, these data were uh, first presented at uh, ASH in 2019 and then published in Lancet Oncology in 2020. Um, and this was also a relatively straightforward uh, phase two open-label study, um, a multi-center study done globally. And what we see here is that um, really we had two cohorts of patients enrolled, those who had a gain-of-function mutation in EZH2 uh, or those patients who were uh, wild-type. Um, all patients in the study had had at least one prior line of therapy and then were treated with tazimetastat at a dose of 800 milligrams twice daily uh, until disease progression or intolerance. Uh, response assessment in this study was done with the 2007 uh, IWG criteria, um, and uh, we'll show those uh, data shortly. So who are the patients in this study? Um, here you see, again, um, what we would typically expect for a trial in follicular lymphoma, median age uh, in the 60s, um, and most patients had excellent performance status as noted here. Um, most patients in the study uh, were treated with uh, two lines or more of therapy, so median of two lines of prior therapy. In the wild-type patients, median lines of therapy were three. Um, and you'll see even um, as many as uh, 15 to 30 percent of the patients, depending on the cohort, with more than five lines of prior therapy. So these were uh, relatively heavily pretreated patients. Uh, thinking about some of our um, high-risk populations, so um, there were patients who had uh, transformed follicular lymphoma or grade 3B follicular lymphoma in this trial, so I think that's unique in comparison to other agents uh, where typically patients with grade 3B or transformed disease are excluded. Um, and we note that about half of the patients in each cohort were refractory to a rituximab-containing regimen um, and about similar number to the last uh, regimen used. Um, and then if we think about the patients, um, as Nathan pointed out earlier, as patients go on through um, subsequent therapies, the um, progression-free survival and overall survival decrease. And so uh, noting here that the median time from initial diagnosis uh, in these patients was relatively long. So this is the waterfall plot for the cohort of patients with uh, gain-of-function EZH2 mutation. And what we note here is that 98% of the patients had some evidence of tumor reduction uh, as shown uh, here. And then looking at patients with wild-type EZH2, what we note is about 65% of the patients in the cohort had a reduction in uh, tumor volume. Um, interestingly, this kind of difference in uh, um, radiographic measurement of uh, disease response uh, didn't seem to, to translate into a difference in progression-free survival. Again, um, when we look at progression-free survival in the two different cohorts, it's relatively similar. So median PFS was uh, just a shy of 14 months in the EZH2 mutated cohort, 
and 11 months in the EZH2 wild type cohort. And I think this is interesting because it suggests that um, perhaps there is, uh, you know, something uh, more important than the the t- tumor shrinkage alone that that may um, drive clinical benefit in patients uh, with this therapy. Uh, I think most excitingly with tazimetastat is it, it is really a, a therapy that has a very low toxicity profile. So if we look at uh, all grade uh, toxicity, so um, really even grade one and grade two toxicities, the most common toxicity was nausea and twenty three percent. So relatively low rates of even grade one and grade two toxicity. And if we look at grade three or uh, four toxicity, that was extremely low with um, cytopenias, uh, thrombocytopenia or anemia being um, uh, the more common, uh, but those being in uh, single um, digit incidences. So the majority of patients in the study tolerated the the tazimetastat extremely well with very few patients requiring discontinuation. Um, there were about a quarter of patients that had dose interruptions due to uh, treatment emergent adverse events, as noted. So when we think about um, what we learned from this trial, I think importantly it shows that tazimetastat has uh, meaningful clinical activity and the potential for durable responses in patients, especially those that are, are relatively heavily pretreated. And I think importantly, a very low rate of high-grade toxicities, which suggests that this is going to be an agent that uh, really can be combined with other therapies and, and be a good partner for other therapies that we uh, already recognize are active in follicular lymphoma. And that's the focus of um, two ongoing trials, um, one with uh, tazimetastat plus lenalidomide and rituximab and another with rituximab alone. So I'll just briefly review um, those study schemas. So there is an ongoing uh, phase 1b3 um, study of a tazimetastat plus lenalidomide and rituximab um, in the second line setting uh, compared to the combination of just lenalidomide and rituximab as a uh, standard of care control arm. Um, importantly, this study started with a safety run-in and the results of that phase 1b safety run-in will be presented um, uh, this year um, by Connie Botlevy from Memorial Slim Kettering. Um, And just highlighting from the abstract of the 12 patients in that run-in who uh, were valuable for tumor assessments, um, just about 40% of the patients had complete responses uh, with an overall response rate of uh, 91.7%. So I think an important study that we'll all um, uh, watch in the coming years uh, to try to understand um, what this uh, combination might offer uh, patients. Um, Another study ongoing. This uh, study is called Symphony 2. This uh, study started as an investigator-initiated study at our uh, center um, that has now become a, a multi-center study. Looks at the combination of tazimetastat with rituximab in patients who have had at least uh, two prior lines of therapy, and uh, we'll be presenting a, a trials in progress uh, poster for that on uh, Monday evening. And you see the study design here. Um, this uh, study design actually uses a fixed duration of treatment, so 24 total cycles of the of tazimetastat uh, with six cycles of rituximab as shown here. Um, and uh, the overall response rate actually in the um, wild-type patients is the primary objective uh, of the study. So just thinking about uh, tazimetastat and where this fits or EZH2 inhibition in general, um, I think, you know, we recognize that the field is moving towards um, chemotherapy-free options in the management of relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. 
and the uh, activity as a single agent of tazimetostat, both in patients uh, with gain-of-function mutation or wild-type, as well as its um, very uh, favorable toxicity profile, I think makes it an exciting agent to combine with other therapies that are active in this space. So if we come back to our, our case of Kevin, um, thinking about tazimetostat, he certainly is a patient that looks like those treated in the phase two trial, um, a patient who had had um, a short uh, remission to initial bendamustine and rituximab, uh, has received lenalidomide and rituximab as well. And when I think about tazimetostat in my patients in the clinic, I often think about those patients who uh, may be um, the avoidance of certain toxicities is going to be important. So as Nathan highlighted, for example, immune-mediated toxicities um, can be an issue with uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors. Those also can be um, an issue with immunotherapies, as Dr. Bartlett is going to discuss later. So uh, as an example, patients that might have autoimmune conditions, this is a really important uh, low therapy or low toxicity therapy that might be important. But I would say broadly can really be considered in any patient type uh, given the uh, single agent activity and uh, the uh, safety profile. Um, and then just some uh, additional considerations when using Tazimetostat. So I think initially when this agent was approved, um, you know, there was uh, some, uh, I, I think, uh, confusion is fair to say about the label indication. So I think it's important to recognize we can use this agent in patients regardless of their EZH2 mutation status. Um, so it's not necessary for testing. However, I do think that testing is helpful in thinking about how to assess responses. So recognizing that there is this uh, difference in uh, depth of response uh, as seen in the phase two study, that can be helpful if we're trying to understand, okay, what are we looking for in these um, objective responses that we're looking for uh, radiographically? Um, so we can use it in, in any patient. Typically in our institution, we do do EZH2 testing now at diagnosis. This is a mutation that's usually if present going to be present at diagnosis. It's not an, a mutation that is acquired later um, in uh, the disease course. Um, and importantly, um, we want to know that that responses can can take some time with this agent. So the median time to response in the phase two trial is about 3.7 months. And so if patients are clinically benefiting, their symptoms that may be due to follicular lymphoma are improving, perhaps their blood counts if they had cytopenias are improving. I think it's important to try to keep the patients on these agents. Uh, and we can see that depth of uh, response evolves over time. And so I think clinical benefit is really important to assess in patients when we're using tazimetostat. And, and another note, just to note, we, we do want to be mindful of secondary malignancies. So there have been a small number of secondary malignancies reported in patients treated with tazimetostat, including MDS and AML. Uh, again, that's a low frequency, but uh, really something to be uh, aware of, especially as we're monitoring uh, patients' blood counts. So I I'd like to ask uh, Nathan and, and Nancy kind of what your thoughts are about tazimetostat and, and how you're using this uh, agent in your clinic to treat patients with uh, relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. Uh, I'll start. And uh, that was uh, a really helpful review of the drug. And I think um, you really highlighted what I see as the big advantage of this drug, which is the lack of toxicity. So in the patients that I've treated, um, I cannot remember seeing any toxicity in the patients, which they really appreciate after having been through several lines of prior therapy. And so I see it as a drug that even though the response rates and the CR rates are not, um, you know, exceedingly high, that because there's no toxicity, if your patient is still 
uh, not in some sort of extremis from their follicular lymphoma, that I think it is something that we had the advantage with this disease over more aggressive lymphomas, um, that they can, um, you know, try this first. And if they respond, then, you know, potentially another uh, really, you know, advantage over waiting for, for, more, for more toxic therapies. I agree with Nancy. Um, yeah, the, the, the side effect profile of this drug is really phenomenal. Um, I have, I can think of, again, my own patients, I think I have three patients on this, this drug now. And, um, at least again, small number, but, uh, my, my other thing that I've noted is, is it takes a long time for, in fact, I, I can tell you the first patient, uh, I was fooled a little bit cause I didn't see any response in, in the first three months. And then I kept them on drug and, uh, this patient has now been on drug about a year. And each time I see him, it shrinks another 10%, 15%. And, uh, you know, what, what I, what I often tell patients, because we, we, we look at the scans together and we kind of debate, uh, whether, okay, if we keep going or should we stop? And for me, uh, that, that conversation is always a, it's always kind of a risk benefit ratio. Uh, so in a disease, in a, in a drug that doesn't have a lot of side effects, I usually tell them, Hey, you know what? It, it's not, nothing's growing, probably some benefit and, uh, let, let's stay on drug. And that's again, it, it's very different than a drug where for example, they, they had pneumonitis and, and there you're only getting a 5% reduction in the, in the tumor there. I'm, I'm more likely to stop. But again, because of the side effect profile, I think it, it, it really is kind of neat that, that a lot of these patients, I just keep them on and I just see this, this little bit of reduction each time I get an image. Um, so, uh, but you know, what, what patient population, it, it kind of goes back to in a, in a population where. I think if you've got something that's rapidly progressing, uh, that you need to really debulk, I, I might not go here first. Uh, I, yeah, I, I do think some of the other agents probably have a more, um, the profile is more suggestive of a more rapid response at first, at first restaging. Um, and then the other thing I, I like to always kind of think about in follicular is that it's not just the line of therapy, but it's the time between lines. Uh, so, you know, in a patient who, uh, is rapidly progressing between therapies, then I'm really thinking that, you know, they, they would benefit from actually Nancy's going to go there, you know, a more, a more, um, like maybe definitive type, uh, approach like a transplant or, or cell therapy. So, so I guess what I, what I'm trying to get is in, in the patient who has gone a lot of long time between therapies, you know, maybe has medium volume, uh, it's a great option because, you know, we have, we have the luxury of kind of just watching and, and seeing how, how, um, how they do. Um, so, and that's the population of the three, three patients that I have, they, they kind of been watching them. They kind of slowly started to get more formal volume. Uh, and then we, we made a, a kind of, um, decision together to start this drug and, and all three of them are responding. So, um, so. I will, uh, uh, anything else, uh, Krish, I think, uh, that, that we, that we didn't, uh, touch on. No, thank you. You guys, uh, highlighted it well. Thanks. Then we'll, why don't we, uh, move on and talk about again, a, a really, I think a really exciting new class of drugs. And, and one of those was just approved, uh, this year. And that's, that's, uh, these kind of new cellular therapy approaches and I'll turn it over to Nancy Bartlett, who is 
led a lot of the uh, charge in, in, in using these kind of drugs uh, in the clinic. Dr. Bartlett. Great. Thank you so much. It's really my pleasure to participate in this symposium today. And uh, so I'm going to um, take a little bit of a turn here and look at immunotherapy, specifically CAR T-cell therapy and bispecific antibodies in patients with relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma. So just uh, again to revisit this case, which we've been talking about uh, through the session, the 66-year-old gentleman who has now relapsed twice after uh, BR and uh, R-squared. And so the question is, are there immunotherapy options for this patient? So just going to revisit the NCCN guidelines again, which we've again already seen and highlight the fact that uh, the anti-CD19 CAR T-cell therapy AXA-cell uh, was approved earlier this year for patients with relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma who have seen at least two prior lines of therapy. So this is just a cartoon that I think most of you are very aware of, but just to review the whole process for CAR T-cell therapy. So initially, patients undergo leukapheresis, and that uh, leukapheresis product is then shipped uh, to the company that's going to make the CAR T-cells, and they isolate the T-cells from the leukapheresis product and then uh, engineer those to express the modified T-cell receptor that's targeting CD19, which is present uh, on the surface of all B-cell lymphomas. And um, it takes about three to four weeks for that process before they're returned to the site. And then once they're returned to the site, uh, the patient receives what's called preconditioning chemotherapy, which usually is outpatient chemotherapy, three days of fludarabine and cytoxin. And then there's a couple of days for the chemotherapy to wash out. And at least at our site, uh, the patients are then admitted uh, for infusion of their CAR T cells. I know there are some centers that are now doing this as an outpatient. We have a minimum uh, seven-day inpatient stay for these patients after CAR T-cell therapy, and I think our, our median stay is about 10 days. So just in terms of the logistics of the, of the CAR T-cell therapy, again, the patients to be eligible uh, with the current FDA approval is have to have seen at least two prior lines of therapy and patients who have active infection, inflammatory disorders, um, some autoimmune disorders are not eligible for this approach. And the patients do need to be referred to specialized centers uh, that are familiar with this procedure um, for their lymphodepleting chemotherapy as well as their CAR T-cell therapy uh, because we need to watch carefully for neurotoxicity and CRS in these patients. And then after the procedure, I think in addition to monitoring for relapse and recurrence, if the patients are referred back. Uh, to their primary oncologist, that we do need to be aware that these patients can have very delayed cytopenias uh, up to several months, even a year after the treatment. So they need to have their, their counts checked frequently, and most of these patients do stay on PGP, PGP prophylaxis uh, as well as antivirals and have IgG levels checked, and some of them need to, to be on uh, IVIG as well. So I'm going to start with the Zuma-5 study, which was the therapy, the study that uh, resulted in FDA approval of CAR T-cell therapy for relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma. And this study included both follicular and marginal zone patients, but I'm just going to um, limit my remarks to the follicular lymphoma cohort. So again, had to have had at least two prior lines of therapy. This study did include the fludarabine and cytoxin as the conditioning regimen. 
And the primary endpoint was overall response rate, with secondary endpoints being CR and PFS and OS, as well as the AE profile. So the response rates look uh, very encouraging. So there in the middle are the, um, the cohort who had follicular lymphoma, and the overall response rate was 94% with 80% CR rate. And um, which is obviously very encouraging. And I think what we're all most interested in is the durability, uh, which is shown on this slide. So on the left is the duration of response and the blue curve is the follicular lymphoma patients. So you can see that um, still continuing to see some drop-offs out there in the 18-month range. And on the right, I think, is what we've seen with many therapies for follicular lymphoma is that the solid blue curve are the patients who achieved a complete remission compared to the dotted blue curve, which are the patients that achieved a partial remission. So patients who have partial remission as their best response uh, generally have a fairly rapid time to relapse as opposed to the CR patients. And then this shows the PFS curves. And again, this was data that was presented uh, last year at ASH by Dr. Jacobson. And on the left is the PFS and on the right is the overall survival curve. And then this data is going to be updated uh, by Dr. Neelapu at this meeting. And so the ASH uh, 2021 update is that the, at a median follow-up of 30 months, that the median PFS is now 39.6 months uh, with a 24-month overall survival of 81%. So a median PFS of just over three years, uh, which is very encouraging. And I think it's still a little early. I think we need, as we do with all the follicular lymphoma studies, need even longer follow-up, but certainly compared to the other drugs we've heard about today that have the median PFS you know, around the one-year mark, having that median PFS be around the three-year mark is, is obviously very encouraging. And then also at this meeting, uh, and I think actually Dr. Jacobson presented this at last year's ASH, was looking at the subsets uh, of follicular lymphoma patients treated on the Zuma 5 trial, specifically those patients who had an early relapse within 24 months of initiating their first line of therapy, compared to those patients who had longer remissions. And as you can see, um, that the overall response rates were outstanding in both of those groups, as were the CR rates, uh, 78% and 90% respectively. And then uh, Dr. Jacobson presented the 18-month uh, duration of response, the 18-month PFS and overall survival, which if you compare the middle column to the right-hand column, looks like it's probably a bit better in the patients who had longer uh, initial remissions, but still very respectable data, even in the patients who had uh, rapid relapse after their first line of therapy. In terms of the safety data for Zuma 5, I would say overall that um, all of us have this sense that it's a little bit less toxic in patients with follicular lymphoma than we saw with the CAR-T experience in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, still a high rate of uh, CRS. Uh, in this study, about 78% of patients had CRS, but primarily grade one uh, with some grade two, very low incidence of grade three or higher CRS, 6% in this study. And most of the CRS was fever and hypotension. In terms of neurologic events, again, looks uh, more favorable than we saw with this particular agent in DLBCL, where the incidence of grade three or greater neurotoxicity was more in the 30% range. So in the follicular lymphoma study, 
about 15% of the patients had grade three or higher neuro events, which is still of concern and, and something we need to continue to work on. Most of the neuro events were tremor and confusion. And then uh, I put in the box there on the right that I just want to remind people that prolonged cytopenias are also something we see with CAR T-cell therapy and follicular lymphoma as well as in DLBCL. So in the Zuma 5 study, about a third of the patients with follicular lymphoma still had grade 3 or higher cytopenias more than 30 days uh, after the infusion. So then I'm also going to speak briefly about the ALARA study, which is the study with TISA cell. And they had 94 patients who had relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma uh, treated with this agent. And um, the overall response rate, again, very high at 86% with a CR rate of 66%. So hard to um, compare across studies, but again, looks very encouraging. Maybe a slightly smaller CR rate, lower CR rate than we saw with the AXIS cell. And then the median duration of remission at the time of this presentation, which was in ASCO this year, had still not been reached uh, with 11-month follow-up. And I wanted to point out that something that's a little bit different than my experience with DLBCL patients in CAR-T is that third bullet in the box where 12 of 31 of the patients who achieved a partial remission um, converted to a complete remission. And all of those conversions except one occurred between month three and month six. So I think we all worry very, uh, we worry a lot about our DLBCL patients after CAR T cell therapy who still only have a PR at month three. But with these patients, you should probably hang in there and not give additional therapy as long as they're not symptomatic because there is about a 30% chance that that patient will then go on to achieve a CR. And then this shows the median PFS and overall survival uh, curves for the ALARA study. And we're going to see an interesting update uh, at this meeting that the median follow-up of the abstract that's going to be presented by Dr. Thiel Beaumont at this meeting is a 17-month follow-up with a 12-month PFS of 67%. So that's in contrast to the previous presentation, which had a six-month PFS of 76%. So Still seeing some drop-off between the six-month and the 12-month time point. And then um, they're going to show us the 12-month PFS for patients who had POD24. And you can see that's a little bit small, uh, a little bit shorter than patients who had um, uh, a longer initial remission. So 61% were still in remission at 12 months versus 78%. And then patients who had bulky disease. So the high uh, total metabolic tumor volume, 54% versus patients who had less bulky disease where the 12-month PFS is 68%. And then they also looked at the number of prior lines of therapy, which I think we're all interested in in terms of when we need to jump in with this and, and still have the treatment work. So I was very encouraged to see that even patients who had had at least five prior lines of therapy had a 12-month PFS uh, on this study of 60% compared to about 70% for the patients who had had fewer numbers of therapies. In terms of the safety, uh, looks very good. In fact, looks a little bit better than the Zuma 5 data. And that's true in the DLBCL cohorts with the, with the TISA cell as well. So about half of patients had CRS, but there were no reports of grade 3 or higher CRS. And only 1% of patients had grade 3 or higher neurotoxicity. 
And they did mention that most of the CRS and ICANN's events were in patients who had bulky disease. So probably want to keep that in mind in terms of monitoring these patients. So then I want to uh, switch to talk for a few minutes about the bispecific antibodies, which are in development for relapse and refractory follicular lymphoma. And all of these ones that are currently being um, looked at are CD20, CD3 bispecifics, and I'll show a cartoon on the next slide. But, but these are the four, mosunutuzumab, ipcaritimab, adronextimab, and glofitimab that we have some preliminary data uh, to look at. And uh, of note, the mosunutuzumab has been given FDA breakthrough designation for relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma. So just the general um, schema for, for the mechanism for these T-cell-dependent bispecific antibodies. So there on the left, you can see that the, the IgG antibody targets both CD20 on the B cell as well as CD3 on the T cell. And then the cartoon shows uh, what happens after these two cells uh, are engaged with the antibody, so the T cell and the target lymphoma cell, that that causes T cell activation and release of granzyme and perforin and hopefully a death of the lymphoma cell. But it also, the T cell activation also results in cytokine release, uh, which is where we see some of the side effects. So we're going to start with mosunutuzumab, uh, which is going to be presented at this meeting by Dr. Buddy, and uh, hopefully will show up online uh, in the next few weeks in JCO as well. And uh, very encouraging data. So these patients had, a, had to have um, at least two prior lines of therapy, so similar to the CAR-T cell patients, and um, had to have grades 1 to 3A. So these studies do not include patients with 3B. And these patients also had to have a good performance status similar to the CAR T-cell studies. So the overall response in the 90 patients that are going to be presented at this meeting was 79% with a CR rate of 58%. And then you can see the data uh, in the right-hand column there for patients who are higher risk. So the POD24 patients had a CR rate of 55%. Interestingly, the, the best CR rates were seen in the patients who had had only two prior lines of therapy, uh, but still very high, 52% in patients who had had three or more prior lines of therapy, and CR rates that are comparable in patients who were refractory to prior CD20 and refractory to alkylators. And then this is the data that's also going to be presented um, at this meeting uh, by Dr. Morshauser, and this is for glofitimab. Uh, and they did, uh, they had two cohorts in their studies. So one that was monotherapy and one that included a combination with obinutuzumab. And overall response rate was 81% with a complete metabolic response rate of 70% in the mono cohort. And I've highlighted the mono cohort results there uh, because there was increased toxicity in the obinutuzumab lofitimab combination. So I'm not sure what the company is planning, but I'm guessing proceeding uh, with this as, a, as monotherapy. And you can see, again, they've shown you the, the complete remission rates for the highest risk patients. So for instance, the POD24 patients here had a CR rate of 58%, so similar to what we saw with Mosin. And the last line there shows patients who had very bulky disease still had a CR rate of 
And then the last bispecific I'm going to speak about briefly is the upcaritimab. And this data was actually published this year uh, in Lancet. And this was a phase one study that included patients with uh, several subtypes, both aggressive and low-grade NHL. And they specifically call out in the manuscript the 11 patients who had follicular lymphoma. So very small numbers, but Interestingly, the overall response rates, uh, 81% in these 11 patients with a CR rate of 45%. So again, looking very similar to the GlowFit and the Mosin, uh, which we just looked at. And this is an interesting molecule because these are the, this was the first company to explore subcutaneous administration of the bispecific. Uh, Mosin is also now uh, in tests or in studies in the sub-Q formulation as well, but some evidence that this decreases the risk of CRS and also just a better PK profile for these patients. I'm not sure it's going to, I think what we need to, to figure out is whether there's any difference in the response rates when it's given IV versus sub-Q. So just to sort of summarize the safety experience with the bispecifics and maybe contrast it a little bit to the CAR T-cell therapy, that the CRS uh, is fairly prominent. Uh, in these three studies that I've just shown, the incidence was anywhere from 45 to 79 percent, but almost exclusively grade one. Uh, a small percentage of patients have grade two, and the incidence of grade three in these three studies was zero to two percent. And uh, no, no fatalities related to CRS on any of these studies. And there are some potential mitigation strategies, which all of the companies are looking at. Uh, one of which is the cycle one step-up dosing where patients get a very small dose of the bispecific on cycle one, day one, slightly higher dose on cycle one, day eight, and then full dose on cycle one, day 15, or on cycle two, day one. And then the subcutaneous administration also looks like an effective mitigation strategy for CRS. And in all three of these studies, the use of tocilizumab and steroids was very uncommon. Then the neurotoxicity, although overall neurotoxicity was reported in 5 to 35% of patients, almost all of these were grade 1 with a smattering of grade 2. The incidence of grade 3 neurotoxicity is extremely rare. In these three studies, it was 1% or less. And the most common neurotoxicity is headache, which I think is um, usually treatable and less concerning than some of the neurotoxicities that can be seen with the CAR T cells, where we've seen reports of things like aphasia, seizures, encephalopathy, cerebral edema. I don't think there's any reports of, of those kind of neurotoxicities. And then the cytopenias, although about a quarter of the patients in these studies do develop grade three or higher neutropenia, the incidence of febrile neutropenia and serious infections is extremely low. Uh, much lower than reported with CAR T-cell therapy. So my take-homes for the immunotherapy and follicular lymphoma, I think uh, both the CAR T-cells and bispecific antibodies are highly effective therapies. And um, of course, we need longer follow-up because it's follicular lymphoma. But the patients who achieve a CR with either of these therapies appear to have some durability, uh, at least over the first few years. I think it's too early to use the word cure, although we're quite hopeful that either one or both of these therapies will hopefully uh, result in prolonged remissions. And then I think the bispecific antibodies have the advantage over CAR-T of being off the shelf, so patients can start treatment very quickly, outpatient administration, 
uh, certainly a, a pretty favorable toxicity profile. And I anticipate that we will have FDA approval of at least one of the bispecifics in, in 2022, uh, perhaps early 2023, but I'm hopeful 2022. And then I still have questions uh, in my mind about how to sequence these. And I think it might be a different sequence for follicular lymphoma than it would be for DLBCL. Uh, but I, I guess in, in follicular lymphoma, I'd probably lean toward bispecifics once those are approved or even on a clinical trial at this point before heading to the CAR-Ts. And I think we don't know yet, but I think it was certainly under investigation about whether either of these treatments should be, should be moved up uh, in the lines of therapy for, for follicular lymphoma. So just to bounce back to the case again, uh, with this patient who had a relatively rapid relapse after BR and then another rapid relapse after um, R-squared, that I do think immunotherapy is a reasonable treatment choice. Uh, I think we've already kind of touched on this in terms of how the bulk of disease and how symptomatic the patient is in terms of, of what, what you might do next, but just kind of my thoughts, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Uh, in terms of uh, considerations that I think if you have a clinical trial available bi for biospecifics and hopefully later this year even or later next year, uh, maybe even uh, FDA approval that, as I've already mentioned, I think the biospecifics probably have a more favorable safety profile, the fact that the patients can treat, start treatment immediately and this outpatient administration uh, is an advantage. I think the CAR T cells are very effective, and I generally delay choosing those until fourth line uh, or perhaps even later, uh, just because as we've talked about all these other great options that have very minimal toxicity. And even if you can, you know, buy a few years before the patient has to undergo this therapy, that's, that's a good thing in my mind. And I still have some delay, some concern, not only about the acute toxicities of CAR T cell therapy, but also these delayed cytopenias and infections. And if the patient did relapse within that first year, then I think it's a little bit harder after CAR T cell therapy to jump in with the next line of therapy uh, because of issues with infection. But very interested in, in what Nathan and Chris have to say in terms of how they might uh, approach these patients in terms of sequencing these, these immunotherapies. Thanks, Nancy. Um... It's it's one of these it's one of these like um, good bad problems to have you know we have uh, I, I know all of us have been practicing since the days where you know the, these patients it was transplant uh, or 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 you know just something that was palliative so at least in my it, it it's it's I think it's one of these I hate to use this word but it's one of these kind of art of medicine type eras where at least in my own practice it's understanding kind of the, um, the disease process. Uh, so I, I again, I, one of the things I'm, I always get concerned about, uh, is, you know, when we think about these just in, in line of therapy, which is where they're all, all, all approved, you know, in third line or second line, because, uh, in follicular where the, again, I, I know you guys know, obviously know all this is that, uh, you know, you can have a patient that is in the third line, but it took two and a half years to get there. Or the patients in the third line, it took 15 years to get there. That's a very different patient. And, uh, you know, at least when I'm thinking about CAR-T or bites, I, I tend to, as you pointed out, you, you think about those as options for patients that are feeling a fairly rapid order, uh, uh, which is this, this patient here versus 
you know, I, I probably, even though the, the adverse event rate is lower than large cell, it's still, it's still concerning in a little population, at least today, I don't know who those patients are. So in, in a patient that, and, and, and as you, we, we've seen the survival of follicular lymphoma now in many, most patients is going to mirror the population without lymphoma. So what I definitely don't want to do is you know, give a patient, uh, something that, uh, could lead to some permanent, uh, potentially disabling side effect. And the patient would never have died of lymphoma. And, and for me, I, I don't know. You know, I, I think that, uh, unfortunately we don't have biomarkers. We talked about POD 24 and some other things, but for me, it's kind of a, I, it's kind of a gestalt. I, I look at how aggressive the disease is and what other options I have. And I make an educated decision with the patient around risk benefit. Um, and. Uh, so I, I, that's again, not, not a great answer, uh, except that, uh, I, I tend to don't look as much into the third line as I do is kind of the, the kinetics of each line of treatment when I'm deciding which of the four, which of these three options to, to choose. Chris, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would uh, certainly agree with a lot that you both mentioned, which is the tempo of disease and the biology of the disease in that individual patient really kind of drives this conversation. I, I think um, the off-the-shelf nature of the bispecific antibodies is is really, I think, a, a big advantage, as Nancy pointed out, especially some of those patients who, um, you know, they have follicular lymphoma, but as you pointed out, Nation, the time between um, treatments is very short, and perhaps you even have a concern about occult transformation uh, these are agents that are active in uh, DLBCL, as Nancy pointed out. So that's a patient where if I'm worried about that, that may push me towards an immunotherapy. Um, and Nancy's comment about, um, you know, the, the downstream of the CAR-T, I think is particularly important. When we think about bispecific antibodies, we're really relying on the native T-cell health. And, uh, you know, one of the things that certainly we don't know a lot about is what is that post-CAR T-cell therapy? So while bispecifics can be active in that setting, post-CAR T-cell therapy um, sequencing these agents is going to be really important. So, you know, where are we getting the maximum uh, output from these therapies and what are the upstream therapies impact is something I try to think about. And of course, now we're also moving into an era of allogeneic cellular therapies. So off the shelf manufactured therapies. So uh, I think uh, you, you put it really well, both of you that, you know, these really need to be individualized. Um, the one thing I've also noted is, and this is a bit different in follicular lymphoma than large cell is, Sometimes my patients have said, you know, I really like the, the one-time nature of CAR T-cell therapy. So I totally get that it may be a more toxic therapy, but I'm looking at it as a one and done and, and potentially not having to be on a therapy indefinitely. So this concept of a fixed duration of treatment may be appealing to some patients uh, as well. That's a great point, uh, Krish. And I guess I, I did forget to point out that um, with the GlowFit and the Mosin study, that it is a fixed duration, much longer than than um, the CAR T cell therapy, obviously. But patients who achieve a CR are uh, they stop after eight cycles, and the cycles are every three weeks, so that's about six months of therapy. And patients who have a PR were allowed on these studies to go on, at least on the Mosin study, to a total of seventeen cycles. So it's not one of those treatments like the PI three K and the Tezametasat that we talked about, where patients stay on them until progression that if they do have a CR, so a lot of these results are patients who have been off therapy for quite some time, which again, looks encouraging. What do, so, and how about Nance uh, or, or Chris, you know, the, as you mentioned, the, the target is CD20 for the bites uh, versus 19 for the CAR-T. Do, does this make a difference to you? In other words, 
if a patient had multiple CD20s, would you pick a 19 before or, or again, does that, does that enter in, assuming all these drugs are FDA, FDA approved in the future, would you pick a 19 before or vice versa? So that's a great question. And I'm hoping that we see more data um, that from, especially from the Mosin and the GlowFit studies, which are the ones that I've been involved with in terms of looking at the, like say CD20 density that they can measure in a patient who's failed all these other CD20 therapies. But what we do know is that these anti-CD20 bispecific antibodies are very effective in patients who have failed prior anti-CD30 therapy, anti-CD20 therapy, excuse me, and including as their most recent line of treatment. So um, we, we do need more information about that for sure. And I'll throw an oddball question. Uh, how about combinations? Do you see the the, the, any of these, like, for example, PI3 or CH2 or, or others being combined with CAR-T or, or bites? Well, you mentioned a little bit about uh, the, the CD20, but... Yeah, it's interesting, right? So, you know, especially with bispecific antibodies, um, you know, other immunomodulatory drugs may augment the sort of T-cell activity, right? So you think about lenalidomide or even PI3 kinase inhibitors. So those might be perhaps rational partners um, of course, the side, the downside of that is what does that do to toxicity? And, and you know, I think maybe borrowing a little bit from CLL and um, combining BTK inhibitors with CAR T cells seems to maybe ameliorate some of the cytokine release and toxicity. So I think it's a really interesting time, Nathan, and, and hopefully the science will will lead us to, to these rational combinations or even combinations of bispecifics with CAR T cells, right? They're, they're CD3 engaging therapies. So you, you may be able to get dual antigen targeting from a bispecific and a CD19 CAR T cell, so. Those are, those are great points. And I would just point out that um, at this meeting, there is a uh, presentation of the preliminary results of the mosunituzumab plus lenalidomide uh, for relapsed and refractory follicular lymphoma. And then the phase three study, which I'm not sure if either one of your sites is participating in, uh, just opened. And that's actually in the second line or greater. So patients who had to have relapsed only after one prior therapy comparing Mosin plus Len to Arlen. Um, so I think that'll be interesting to see. Again, can we can we move up one line or not? Is it helpful or not? Yeah. Is there is there a population that you would you would assume let's say we we do get these uh, or the studies read out positive. Is, is there a we talked a little about POD twenty four, but is there an indication, any other indication we might move to second line or goodness, even, even earlier with uh, CAR T or bite? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think I'm really glad that they're jumping in with a phase three study in the second line setting so that we can actually make some educated decisions about whether that's the right place for it. And I think mosunutuzumab len versus Arlen is, is a, you know, a great comparator in terms of whether there is an advantage uh, in that line, uh, in that line. And I don't know about the CAR T's, you know, earlier, uh, than third line. I mean, I guess we're going to see lots of data at this meeting for the DLBCL cohort, uh, in patients who are primary refractory, but I, you know, I think the patients who have primary refractory follicular lymphoma are few and far between, and they're, they're probably patients who have some DLBCL. And so, you know, I think they're going to have to be very careful about choosing patients for CAR T as as earlier line of therapy. My 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 former colleague Fernando Cabanillas used to say that you know there, there's this there's this group of folliculars 
that even though you biopsy and biopsy, they, they never show large cell, but they behave like large cell. Um, uh, you know, they, they, and those pay, I'm just thinking out loud that, you know, maybe the, the population is someone that, uh, you know, that, that they would benefit from an earlier line, uh, or earlier intervention, right? With, yeah. Thankfully, those patients are pretty rare. Even, I don't know what you guys think. I mean, we have a hard time finding any POD24 patients for trials. That uh, thankfully, that's a, that's an uncommon subset as well. So thanks. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, exciting time with, with lots of good options. Uh, so, you know, at the meeting, I, I know uh, we, we talked about several of these. I just kind of picked the, the five uh, abstracts that I, I think are, are really exciting and potentially practice changing. And we talked about several of these already. Um, Catherine Thiebaumont will present the uh, ELORA data, and uh, this will actually come out in Nature Medicine uh, about a week after ASH. Uh, we'll also uh, see some updated data on uh, glufitumab plus OBIN, as Nancy mentioned, mosituzumab. Uh, my colleague Safanilopu is going to present an, a longer-term update on Zoomer 5, which is the axicel and follicular. And, and finally, uh, we'll also see uh, uh, an update on the Unity NHL trial, but this one is now looking at the U2 uh, regimen, which is umbrelizumab uh, plus uh, monoclonal antibody, uh, ublituximab in marginal cell lymphoma. And to remind folks, uh, uh, umbrelizumab was approved as a single agent. Uh, for marginal zone lymphoma in, in that disease. So we already got some uh, uh, questions from the audience and uh, just in the interest of time, I'm gonna just pick a couple of these. Um, and I think, uh, uh, Chris, you, you kind of went to this, I'm gonna ask you this question because you, you mentioned this a little bit of earlier about EZH2 testing. And uh, you mentioned that, that uh, again, in, in Seattle, you guys are, are doing this as baseline. Should we be checking EZH2 in everybody with follicular? Yeah, I think it's still an an, uh, an open uh, question. Uh, we certainly do it um, primarily because we think it helps us to identify, um, you know, or interpret, I should say, response rates. We mentioned the kind of difference in what was seen, at least, uh, of radiographic responses. But I think one could certainly also make the argument that if it doesn't uh, impact our selection of therapy, that we could use an EZH2 inhibitor in any patient with follicular lymphoma, then perhaps we don't need to do it. So. Uh, I think it'll be interesting uh, to see if if there continues to be a difference in responses when we are studying um, EZH2 inhibitors in combinations. And so, um, you know, I think we'll, we'll we'll see with more data. And again, you mentioned about, you know, the, the, although it's active in wild type, are you more likely to sequence it earlier if patients have uh, EZH2 positive disease? Yeah, I think coming back to a point you made earlier, Nathan, which is, you know, if you have a patient with bulky disease and, you know, let's say that disease is, um, you, you want to get that knocked down or or you feel that you need a maybe a, a little bit more confidence that you're going to get a tumor reduction, then I think there having the mutation status is helpful. Um, you know, we saw that 98% of the patients that have mutated EZH2 had a reduction in tumor volume compared to about, you know, 60% in the wild type. So there it might be helpful in selection. And so uh, that's certainly supported by the label as well. Um, yeah, that's good. I, I will, I'll, I'll take this one here about P well, there's a couple on PI3 kinase inhibitors, um, specifically around re-challenge patients after prior exposure. I think it all depends on why they're off. Uh, so if they had a, you know, a, 
I've seen, let's say severe pneumonitis, I probably would not rechallenge with another drug, with another drug in that same class. Um, colitis or diarrhea. Again, I think that depends on really the, the severity of the event. If they had a grade two event and they came off drug and potentially, I, you know, I didn't have other options. I definitely would consider restarting, um, in patients who progress in my mind. I don't know enough if there's, if there's enough evidence that they're significantly different, uh, that I would necessarily, if they had a frank progression on one drug in this class, I probably would go to a different class of drugs. I probably would not repeat, uh, another PI3. I, I don't know if Nancy or, or Chris, you agree with that. Oh, I, I agree. But I was just thinking what I might do though now, if Sandalisib gets approved with those higher response rates, that it seems like maybe they're would be an advantage to that drug. So in a patient who's already failed a sort of an, an older PI3K, what do you guys think? Maybe I would be willing to try that just because the data looks different than it does for the other four yeah. drugs. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, I agree with you. I wouldn't, we have so many choices. I would just say that there wouldn't be, a, you know, a reason to re-challenge a patient. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I think similarly so. We we don't necessarily understand mechanisms of uh, resistance and PI3 kinase inhibitors all that well. So um, that makes it a little challenging to to consider rechallenge. And 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 as you both said, there are so many other therapies we we have as well as other trials that that patients might benefit from. Yes. Um I yeah, I agree. And and this question here, there's a question about uh, how do patients tolerate next generation PI3s compared to Idella? I mean, my own sense is better um whether that's due to uh, you know better drugs or because we're just you know we're getting better at managing the side effects and educating patients about when to stop uh i think that's i, I do my sense is that the drugs are different uh that they are less toxic but um yeah i, I think that they do tolerate them better but probably for a combination of reasons um what do you guys think about moving either, well, either EZH2 or PI3 kinase earlier? Um, is there, is there a population you would use this, for example, on frontline? Um, Nancy, what do you think? Well, I'm not sure. I think the PI3Ks, you know, I think with the, the, um, adverse event profile that I probably wouldn't be that anxious to move that up, but the tazimezostat, because it's so well tolerated. And again, I don't, uh, know whether there's any, in, you know, laboratory evidence that it is synergistic with other drugs, but it certainly seems like that's an easy drug to move up and mix. So I, I don't know if those studies are already going on, but that seems uh, like something we should probably be exploring. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's any frontline. Uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any frontline with PI3 for sure. Uh, not that I'm, Chris, I don't think. Uh, have you heard of anything in the front line study wise? No, no, I'm, I'm, uh, not aware of any either. Yeah. Well, how about, uh, well, well moving away from front line, what about using, for example, EZH2 as a bridge to CAR-T or, or PI3? Is there any, any role there? If you're, let's say you're assuming you're going to get a, a patient a CAR-T and, uh, you're looking for something to hold, hold the line for a little while, would, would you use even one of these drugs? Yeah, I think th those could be interesting uses of either of those drugs. I think perhaps different uh, than large cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma, we don't tend to see as much use of bridging because the kinetics of the disease are different. So 
sometimes we may not need to bridge, but I think um, if we do, or or you know, patients are certainly symptomatic from their disease, and it still takes time to to get an autologous CAR T cell delivered, then these may be uh, good agents to use. Or um, I'll, I'll even, I've even had a patient actually as an example where we aphorized the patient, we manufactured the commercial CAR T cell, and that patient did need some bridging, and we we put that patient on duvalisib, and the patient stayed on the duvalisib, and we have the CAR T cells kind of banked now for, for a rainy day, if you will, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's good and good. That's, that's great example. So, uh, again, I will, uh, let me just quickly say, uh, Nancy and Chris, thank you for a, a wonderful session. Uh, you know, we were able to touch on some really exciting new drugs. A lot of the highlights that are going to be seen, uh, or have already been seen, uh, at this ASH meeting. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FJR 860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Epizyme, Incorporated, MEI Pharma Incorporated, and TG Therapeutics.